I'm delighted to have with me Michelle Walker. Uh, she's not with me in person at this time of social distancing, uh, but she's with me via a remote link. I am uh, myself outside of New York City, and Michelle is at her home in Chicago. So good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, as an introduction, Michelle is a thinker, she's a writer, she's a keen observer of current and corporate affairs, and a frequent keynote speaker. She is a writer, as I mentioned, and she's the author of The Gray Rhino, which was published in 2016, uh, a book and a concept that we will discuss at length today. Uh, that is very pertinent to the situation, the very unusual situation that we're going through in this country and all over the world with the coronavirus. And uh, so, Michelle, the last time I saw you was three weeks ago, which seems like an eternity, uh, given what we've gone through this month. Does. And we were, we were both in Manhattan, and you had just canceled the trip that you had planned uh, to go to Asia the following week because, and you did that for obvious reasons because of the virus. So let me ask you, do you have any idea when you will be able or I would be able or anyone would be able to go to Asia again or to Europe without having to worry about contracting this uh, terrible disease? So you start out with a softball question, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, well, you know, it's it's a very good question. Um, I have a friend who, who lives in Shanghai who has been a, a coronavirus refugee bouncing around for the last couple months. And uh, she actually just returned to Shanghai because she feels safer there uh, than in the U.S. or Europe. She's, of course, in a, in a two-week quarantine. Um, so I think for, for a while, anyone going to many countries will have to prepare to... Uh, self-quarantine and shelter in place for a while wherever they are so that pretty much rules out short-term trips as far as when it will be normal your guess is as good as mine uh, i think a lot about predictions and people wanting to be so precise about predictions and if you can't be precise enough then they're like oh you know nobody saw it coming you couldn't you couldn't predict it um, but we will at some point be able to go back to normal. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certainly hoping on it uh, being uh, certainly this year and a fewer rather than more months, but uh, everything is, uh, is so not normal right now. It's very hard to make predictions based on the things that we thought we knew. That, that, that is so true. And um you know, you're, you've been, uh, you know, since the gray rhino came out in 2016, and I believe you started discussing this idea even earlier than that, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a few years before that. But, yeah, I came uh, up with it in, um, in 2012 and sort of um, introduced it to the world um, in January 2013 uh, in Davos at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. And... Uh, so had been developing it for a while before the book came out in the U.S. in 2016 and then in Asia in 2017. And that's when the concept really took off. And it, I mean, it got a lot of traction in recent years. But now with the virus, you're once again in the spotlight because you've highlighted a, in a way a failure of, of imagination if we want to think of it that way, in the sense that for many people, this was predictable. And yet the level of preparedness is clearly not what it should have been. So why don't we, if you don't mind, for listeners who are not familiar with it, can you summarize the idea of the gray rhino? And then we can talk about how it applies to today. Sure. Well, the, the gray rhino is a, a metaphor for the big two-ton thing with its horn pointed straight at you. It's pawing the ground and snorting and it's, it's about to charge. And you've got a decision to make. You get out of the way, let somebody else get trampled. Uh, you get trampled yourself, not so good. Or you find a way to harness the strength of this rhino and get yourself to a new place. I came up with it as a way to 
attention on how much more likely humans are than we like to think to ignore the obvious thing in front of us. And of course, we've got an expression for that, which is the elephant in the room, which by definition, nobody does or says anything about. And it actually normalizes that. And I didn't think that was okay. I wanted to create an emotional image and connection that emphasized the choices that we have in face of something obvious. And I also wanted to contrast it with the black swan, uh, which of course came out in 2017, uh, a book that drew attention to how much more likely we are to ignore possibilities that, you know, that we're more likely likely to not be able to imagine things that actually do happen. And that was a very good point. Uh, but I felt that people didn't use the concept as it had been intended and instead just used it as a cop-out looking in hindsight, which you know, by definition is the only way you can see a black swan. Uh, they would say, oh, nobody could have seen it coming. I'm going to wash my hands. This is just a big cop-out. You know, we saw that with, with Alan Greenspan's big piece in Foreign Affairs saying nobody could have seen the financial crisis coming. And, you know, to be fair, nobody could have seen the, the particular combination of events and how they interacted and reinforced each other. But I like to say that behind every black swan is a crash of gray rhinos, crash being the zoologically correct word for a group of gray rhinos. And there were so many warnings that had been unheeded ahead of the 2008 crash uh, that people just hadn't paid attention to. And we don't seem to have learned the lesson from that. And uh, we've seen a very similar dynamic again with many, many warnings on both the, the pandemic and financial fragilities that people have brushed off, uh, particularly in the West. Yeah, I mean, we are going to have every decade or so, maybe shorter, maybe a bit longer, something very surprising, uh, maybe not to everyone, but to most people. Um, and that is going to sort of throw upside down not just you know life in general but the markets uh corporate planning etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean from the point of view of uh, nasim talib's black swan my read on it is you know coming at it from the perspective of a financial finance professional is the way to invest is to always have some kind of hedging in place uh, because something, as you said, something that you cannot predict at all may surprise you. Uh, but that's not necessarily, you know, outside of finance, it may not be a way that somebody can live or maybe uh, plan for corporate strategy. As a corporation, you could also hedge your, your financial exposure, but it's very difficult to kind of uh, optimistically invest in a big way as a corporation if you're fearful of uh, a sudden event that may that may throw it all upside down whereas uh, with the gray rhino if i understand you correctly you're saying these are not things that come out completely out of the blue but there are and i quote you here that are highly probable highly impactful and yet neglected in other words these are things that maybe we see on the horizon that we don't worry about because they seem far away, and yet that we should plan for accordingly. Yes, and in fact, you know, sometimes they're not even necessarily that far away. I look over the reactions over the past several weeks to the the approach of the the virus, and have found very different reactions. You know, in different cities. Uh, you know, being in New York a few weeks ago, uh, it was definitely farther ahead on the freakout curve than, than Chicago. Um, and I found that so many different people react differently, respond differently. There was a, a, a poll a week or two ago looking at how people, how worried people were about the coronavirus, depending on the media that they looked at. Uh, and of course, people who watched MSNBC or read the New York Times and the usual suspects we're much more worried than people who watched Fox News. Uh, younger people who read some of the information that they are less likely to get it bad, 
uh, tend to be very cavalier. You probably saw those pictures of um, 20 somethings out on the beach in, uh, in, during spring break in Florida last week. Well, even more so now that they've heard that the virus does not impact them as much in terms of incidence of disease or death. Yeah, yeah. It's, and a big part of that is also how much concern people have for each other. Uh, there's some research showing that people are much more likely to take precautions uh, if they're asked to think about other people instead of just themselves. You know, what about, what about your grandma? What about your, your cleaning lady? And, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I remember when I was starting out as the, the uh, head of a nonprofit and uh, sort of learning fundraising uh, uh, by fire, uh, one of the, the most important lessons that I learned early on was that it's much easier to ask for money if you're not asking, if you're not thinking about it as asking for yourself. It's much easier if you are asking for, you know, for a bigger cause for, for someone else. Right. And so, you know, there's actually a friend of mine, Peter Atwater, has this fantastic framework uh, where he talks about in times of, of high confidence or low confidence, uh, we've got a very different set of perspectives, whether we look at ourselves, whether it's, you know, me here now, which is what we get in times like, like this one, or whether it's us everywhere forever. So in a time of crisis, a lot of uncertainty, uh, less confidence, you're more likely to look just at yourself when in reality it takes looking at the people around you to move you to actions to, to prevent this thing becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And do you think that the needle, so to speak, uh, at a time like now, in a time of crisis, would move uh, away from kind of the individualist mindset and more to the more of a we're all in this together and the only way to get out of it is together I or, think or you don't you don't see that happening already in the in the i, I see society. some of it happening i see a huge variation in reactions uh and you know as you know behavioral economics has become very very big over the the past decade or so looking at the human biases that shape our behavior uh that in ways that may seem irrational, but have this sort of internal logic. And the newer wave of research is showing that not everybody exhibits these biases in the same ways. And so I see that, you know, it, it depends on the kind of information people are getting. Uh, it also depends on time. Uh, you know, over the past couple of weeks, I've seen a few friends on Facebook get diagnosed with uh, the virus. And, you know, luckily they're, they're fine and they're sort of on the other side of it now, but documenting it, I've seen friends with autoimmune conditions and, um, you know, compromised health. I mean, you know, I have asthma, I have celiac disease, I have other autoimmune stuff. So like, I'm, you know, I'm part of that, but I have friends who are in much, much tougher positions. Uh, and they have been posting, say, saying, hey, don't just think about yourself, think about me. And then the past few days, I'm seeing aunts, elder, el uncles, elderly relatives. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Manu Dibango, who's, who just passed away um, from complications from the disease, a you know, global musical treasure. So I think the more we see people, who, the, more, the, the more people we see and the closer they are to us emotionally, the more the more worried we get and the more likely we are to take action. So I think you're going to see a, a, a set of waves in coming days as things get scarier and scarier uh, of people taking this more seriously. And, and too many people are not there yet. Right. I mean, the best thing we can do for each other now is just to stay away from each other, which is kind of a contradiction. Uh, you know, after 9-11, we, we at least could, uh, you know, figuratively at least huddle together whereas now we're we have to do the opposite but that's also effective as a kind of a collective uh contribution to the improvement of everyone's situation absolutely and paradoxically um i found i've been in touch with more and more uh friends over the last couple of weeks than you know than i had been in a long time when i moved to chicago five years i made a point of regularly reaching out to my usual folks since you know, I was in a new city and didn't have my tribe yet. Um, but I've been in touch with so many people, some of it just serendipitously, but also part of a conscious effort. I mean, I think there's 
there's an imperative right now to reach out to the people we know because it, to be honest, we don't know if we're going to continue to have the chance, particularly right. all my friends in New York City. Well, I'm, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, first of all, th- we're also thankful for social media, right? And the internet, because uh, no one can imagine how much more difficult this all would be if we did not have the way to work from home or to communicate with each other or social media or any of those things. So, but your point about uh, being back in touch with some friends that maybe you hadn't talked to in a while, that's, uh, that's true for me also. Uh, I guess it's making people kind of, uh, you know, kind of think of uh, seizing this opportunity to reconnect, which is a good thing. So are we in agreement that uh, you believe that in terms of the virus, that this was something that was predictable? I mean, some people have predicted it. You know, there's the well-known Bill Gates uh, interview or TED Talk, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people have said the same, that this was only a matter of time. We had other episodes with SARS, with uh, avian flu, other things like that. So your view was that this was predictable, not only in its incidence, but also perhaps even in its scale, because those others were a lot smaller than this one. Absolutely. And we, you know, we obviously didn't know the timing. There are a lot of things we know are going to happen. We don't know the particular timing. It's, you know, it's why we've got basements and tornado alarm systems in the Midwest. Um, But even more recently, in the piece I did in the Washington Post last week, I linked to a couple of these um, and, you know, including, um, you know, the the World Health Organization. um, other, Other groups have done reports in the past year, you know, saying, hey, there's a major public health crisis coming. Pandemic is a huge threat. Globalization makes it more likely to spread for tropical viruses like Ebola and Zika and dengue. That uh, rising temperatures are expanding their their habitat and their reach, Uh, you know, in in the Arctic regions, uh, melting permafrost is releasing some of these pathogens from the uh, uh, from the, the, the peat, and uh, some of those are coming back to life. Um, you know, we know that we're that there are new antibiotic resistant strains of pathogens, uh, so many many more dangers. And there was even a, an article in the New York Times that came out shortly after the Washington Post piece. Uh, saying that the Trump under the Trump administration, there was actually a several-month scenario planning exercise with a virus that was very similar to this one. Uh, you know, CSIS did one last fall as well. So lots and lots of these. And there was a piece in this morning's Times about uh, you know why the richest country in the world can't seem to get its act together on a seventy-five cent mask. And it was interesting going back to. Um, uh, uh, I think 2005, uh, there was a warning that we needed to stockpile this in case of a pandemic, that we were not ready. So obviously, we didn't know the exact time. Obviously, there are a lot of characteristics of the virus that we don't know that, you know, they're, they're being studied. I saw last week, there have been 29,000 and counting studies so far, which is incredible. But we knew it was going to happen. It's happened before. In fact, you know, the black swan, uh, you know, by definitions, is if something's happened before, it can't be a black swan because you, you pictured it. My own great-grandfather died in the second wave of the great flu pandemic of 1918 in uh, November of that year, uh, which is worth keeping in mind that we could have a second wave right. of this. So the pandemic was, was for, foreseeable. The timing and specifics, no. But okay. if, you, if you constrain the parameters so tightly, well, then nothing is predictable. Sure. No, I understand. I mean, uh, to someone who would say, you know what, it hasn't happened in uh, 102 years. So maybe I was, this is not me believing what I'm saying. I'm, I'm paraphrasing somebody who may come back at you with the, with the following argument. They may say, you know, it hasn't happened in 102 years. Uh, did it really make sense for me to worry about it all along this time when it's so rare? And if I hear you correctly, your answer to this is that what's different now is number one is globalization. So more travel, more sharing of everything between one country and another. Uh, 
including mostly good things, but unfortunately viruses as well. Uh, and secondly, what you brought up, which is the warming, which also is a catalyst to some of these viruses spreading. So that's, that's your answer to why now, not, not just now to, as in today, but in other words, in, in this period of time, this would be happening as opposed to, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago. Absolutely. And there have been uh, flu pandemics. In fact, I remember stories, you know, from my mom when she was pregnant with me, there was a, I think it was the Hong Kong flu that year. And there was something you know, 10 years before that. Um, so, you know, we've, we've had scares. And I remember in the, the 2009 H1N1, I was supposed to speak at a conference in Mexico that got postponed because of it. And, you know, we don't need to be necessarily worrying every day because you know if you worried every day about every single possible thing that could happen no matter how likely you would just short circuit and shut down but you know governments people with responsibility to take care of us should have been stockpiling masks they they should have paid more attention to the warnings that were coming out and as citizens we need to be much quicker to respond at the first signs of something that can only be addressed with the cooperation of every single person. Right. I didn't mean to sound oblivious. Uh, no, not at all. Don't worry. No, I, meant, I, I didn't mean to sound oblivious to the fact that they've had pandemics in other parts of the world, I was, which, of course, uh, has been uh, a feature in many countries, in less developed countries. Uh, but what I, what I was referring to, I think you understand, was uh, the United States or Europe. Um, that have seen some pandemics, as you said, but nothing as grave as the one of 1918. Hopefully this one won't be either as it unfolds. Um, we do see so, you know, that's a sense of security in, in the wealthier countries that, oh, it can't happen here. Oh, it's a sure. problem for the, for the other country. And, you know, kind of focusing your, your attention on the fact that it's happening in another country is a way of, of mentally distancing it. I'm glad you brought that up because you reminded me of a couple of articles that I read in the last week. Uh, one of them calling this kind of um, uh, kind of almost a, a form of snobbery, or uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of that it it, 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 ha- it happens to others, but not to us. That that kind of mindset. This author was calling it a, a post-colonial arrogance. Uh, a failure of post-colonial arrogance. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I thought it was an interesting point of view. Even in the early days of this virus, a lot of people were were uh, hoping or deluding themselves that it would stay mainly over there and not impact us as much as it has. Exactly. And we're seeing some new research come out that I think may end up surprising us. Uh, Lombardi, uh, there have been a couple of uh, reports uh, the most recent one saying that the first appearance was around mid-November, which interestingly is about the same time that the supposed first case came out in China. And you know the odds of them happening at the same time um, and a connection happening, getting from China all the way to Lombardy at that exact same time seem fairly low to me. And just anecdotally, and not scientifically or medically at all, um, but I've heard over the last couple of years of a change in, in flu seasons, in the, in the kinds of flu. Um, and so, in fact, I'm wondering if, you know, versions of this, milder versions, have been circulating globally for longer than we know. I had a, a very, very bad uh, uh, flu, cold, whatever, it wasn't really tested for uh, about a year ago that was lower respiratory, you know, very little snot. Um, so I didn't take it as seriously, but it eventually got to be so bad that I had an oxygen test, a couple of EKGs. I did a stress test. I had a, a, a lung x-ray uh, because my doctor was afraid that it was heart related. So my asthma came back, the inhaler helped that, but then there was a kind of chest pain I had never experienced before. Um, and so that was about a year ago. And then I had a much milder version in December. So in hindsight, I, I would not be surprised if we start to see some evidence that, you know, the versions of this have actually been circulating longer. Right. Um, again, not medical, not scientific. No, but I get it. I mean, you, you're, the point consider- you're making is there, there's a lot of stuff 
out there that, that we're not aware of and that uh, we only become aware of when it reaches a certain critical critical size or affects a population of a critical size. Well, you sound good now, so I'm glad you're healthy. <laughs> I, I, wish, you. I wish you the best going forward. I just have regular seasonal allergies, which always seem to arrive about two weeks before the, the, the buds do on the trees. I guess it's from the winds taking the bringing the pollen up from the south. And I'm like, seriously, seasonal allergies? Can't you just shelter at home this year? You're non-essential. You're just making a bad situation worse. Allergies go away. Exactly. So uh, let's say somebody had come to you a year or two ago and said, we see this coming. You know, not specifically this virus, of course, because they wouldn't know, but something, you know, whether it's, something closer to Ebola or whatever it is, a, a pandemic, a health uh, crisis. And they had come and said to you, we want to increase our level of preparedness, right? Because that's what the whole idea of the gray rhino is. Absolutely. You think, if you think that something's coming, be, be readier to face it rather than kind of be caught off guard. So, uh, you know, hindsight being of great help, um, how would how would we ideally have been readier for this i mean would would we ever stockpile a sufficient number of respirators would we have five or ten times the number of icu beds that we have does any of that make sense when uh these diseases are so rare in fact well, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to say what stockpiling, quote unquote, enough would be, but, you know, masks is a pr- pretty easy thing. Um, the other part is not even just looking back a year or two, but looking back over the past few months, as the numbers started to become clear, we should have kicked in production quite a while ago. Um, but it's part of a bigger conversation about healthcare, about healthcare access uh, so many people, particularly in the United States, where we've got most expensive care in the world and, um, <laughs> to put it politely, not the best outcomes, um, there's so little spare capacity in the healthcare system. There's a lot of preventive stuff that is not being done that should. Um, that's important. The changing the healthcare system so that people aren't likely to go bankrupt because of a, an illness. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've seen the, the Fed study uh, from a year or two ago saying that 40% of Americans would struggle to handle a $400 emergency expense. Well, this is going to cost a lot more than $400 uh, right. to people. Uh, you know, creating more, uh, more support in the system for people who are vulnerable to those shocks. And then in terms of, of workforce, we're seeing all of a sudden, this, this giant light bulb going on over people's heads about remote working and uh, uh, you know, how many meetings we can have that we don't really need to be in person traveling all over the place for. Um, we've seen these sort of wellness and fatty uh, you know, websites and, and some conversations. You, know, you kind of get the sense that they're, um, they're not entirely serious. People just think it's a way to, to make money. But, but the truth is, uh, in a system where so many workers are stretched so far, who have so much stress in their lives, that makes them more vulnerable to this sort of thing. It makes them more vulnerable to sorts of shocks. It means that they're not there to be able to give their children as much guidance as they need. Uh, so we need to think also about slack in the workforce, particularly as part of the conversation about fourth in- industrial revolution and uh, you know automation. Potentially taking away jobs, it seems kind of silly that we've got people working to the very, very edge of their capacity at a time when we're worried that there aren't going to be enough jobs, and also at a time right now where it's it's clear that if people if there's an emergency that makes people change their behavior for weeks or months, we actually need more slack in the system. We need more redundancy. We've seen that with supply chains. Uh, so there are a lot of broader resilience measures that corporations could be taking. And some of the reasons they haven't is really this, this short-termism, the you know, quarterly earnings reports, uh, this sort of imperative to watch the share price go up 
even though in many cases you're eroding long-term value. You look at the, you know, the airlines and other companies that have spent 90 plus percent of their free cash flow on share buybacks and now are heading to government with the, with hat in hand, Mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. Uh, So I I need to really rethink of much bigger systemic issues. And a lot of people have been talking about those for, for quite a while. Right. I get your point that uh, when we're talking about preparedness, because my question was mainly geared to or mainly oriented to how do we prepare specifically in terms of healthcare equipment. But that's not, and, and you, you acknowledge in your answer that we could do more in, in, in that. But your broader answer is that preparedness isn't just having more ICU beds or this or that. It's as a society having more of a cushion for everyone so that not everyone's living paycheck to paycheck and uh, we can afford this uh, sort of stalemate in the economy a bit longer. And this kind of, this is also how we should measure preparedness is what you're saying. Absolutely. And there's another aspect of that that I've been giving a lot of, of thought to lately uh, you know, partly because, you know, I, I do have my own small business and, uh, you know, looking at a lot of these, these measures for providing help, you know, a lot of them go to, you know, big companies and, uh, it's much harder to provide support for the gig economy workers who are last time I checked on 36% of the U S economy. And I'm sure it's much higher than then it's quickly going towards 50%. You look at the model under which corporations have generally been the ones providing the safety net, the, the health insurance, the, the life insurance, uh, the, the whole set of you know, logistical supports for doing certain kinds of business. But at the same time, they are moving to more and more gig workers, but the employees are the ones who are getting health insurance. And we've seen this debate in California over people trying to force companies to treat gig workers as full-time workers. It really makes you think about uh, the sense of that system that if companies are getting these benefits from from the um, from gig economy workers, you know, maybe there's in fact not just maybe there's got to be a better system for making sure that all workers are healthy, that we don't get supply chain interruptions because a big portion of the people who are providing value in the economy are left vulnerable at times when we need them. I mean, um, so we're in a bit of a catch-22 now because on the one hand, we are asked to stay home and as a result, uh, large sections of the economy are shut down or very much slowed down, if not shut down. So that's on the one hand. Excuse me. On the other hand, you have a very large percentage of people who are uh, living paycheck to paycheck and can't afford to stay home uh, because they need they need uh, they need to continue earning their incomes, um, and so we're in this catch twenty two where we have uh, on the one hand we don't want to do something foolish and we reopen uh, everything too soon and then the virus would spread like crazy, but on the other hand. If we keep it shut down for too long, as the president mentioned, and, and he's not the only one, that we end up having other issues with uh, that, that could also lead to uh, death in the population. You know, it's, it's what uh, Professor Angus Deaton of Princeton has called the death of despair, which is a phenomenon that he identified that's been going on for years. Uh, that's uh, kind of a pandemic of suicide, of uh, death from alcohol consumption, opioids, you you name it. And uh, at least in theory, we could see a surge in these deaths of despair uh, if things get really bad for uh, people who are financially strapped. So we're we're kind of, the fact that we don't have that slack, that, that cushion that would allow people to be home another month or two months without it being a kind of a almost like a existential or a financially uh, extremely tight situation for them 
that's that's that in a way has caused us to to have to make this very difficult choice that that we're facing li- literally today and yesterday it's it's interesting you know people have a very hard time with counterfactuals uh, and i made this point when you know writing about the argentine financial crisis which was part of the inspiration for the gray rhino which is that you know there was a proposal 9 months ahead to reduce you know to to take a 30% haircut uh, to write off 30% of the debt and bankers didn't want to do that and of course they were having a hard time realizing that if they didn't do the 30% it would be much more down the road as 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 it certainly happened to be and so people have a hard time and and rightfully so it's it's very human i'm not criticizing them at all uh for saying hey, I need to feed my family this month. I need to pay my rent. I need to pay my mortgage. Um, if I don't work, I can't do this. And so it's a very concrete thing. But the bigger counterfactual that the epidemiologists have been showing us is that you know, if we don't do this now, this could be a matter of several months instead of several weeks. And the president's point about the economy uh, being being fragile and needing uh, you know needing people to participate is a valid one but then you know why do we have a a uh, a huge slush fund going to corporations without conditions on you know this this money needs to be used to make sure you continue to pay your workers why is less of the, why why isn't more of that package going directly to those people who are so vulnerable. Some of it has to do with bigger policy questions um, that people have been asking for a long time. Uh, Byron Wien has come out, was a few years ago, came out and said that uh, at least 75% of quantitative easing was just going into stock market prices, into this huge stock market bubble, which was a vulnerability that, that you know the pandemic hit and we've got basically a double shock. Um, and many people have been asking, and you know, in, including me, I asked at a, at a Fed conference, okay, what, what can we do to be sure that more of the stimulus goes into the real economy and the people who are actually going to be spending money, which will you know, trickle up to the corporations? And the answer is always, you know, in, in Fed speak, something along the lines of, oh, we don't have the right transmission mechanism. This is all we're able to do. So I think we need a much bigger rethink. Um, first of all, you know, the Fed has been leaned on so heavily because it's it's been pretty much the only institution that's had the the leeway to do much of anything because Congress has been so dysfunctional. Um, we need to really rethink that, and that that needs to be part of the conversations we're having now about the gray rhinos that are coming in future months as a result of this double shock of the pandemic and the market crash. Right. So I want to talk to you about this in a second, about what's coming next. But um, I mean, in terms of um, the actual intervention of the Fed, you know, the whole trickle down idea, which was in vogue for a long time, uh, less and less so in the last 10 years, perhaps, since the, last, since the financial crisis. I mean, it was never unanimously praised as a philosophy, but uh, I think it, it's uh, been severely tested in the last 12, 13 years. Um, I guess the best thing we can say about it is that it, it's trickled down, but not nearly enough, if you want to be kind to it. Do you agree yeah. with that? It, it absolutely, it, it got stuck in the stock market and the, uh, you know, among the, the super rich. And um, there's a lot of studies showing that in times of economic stress, if you want to increase the consum- increase consumption and get the economy going, keeping earnings up, keeping companies going, then you need to get money to the people who are more likely to spend it. The people who are going to put off getting a new refrigerator or new clothes or, uh, you know, going to school or things like that because they don't have the money. And that money is going to trickle up to the corporations too. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help GDP. It's going to keep the economy buzzing along. But what we've been doing is basically putting money into the stock market, actually subsidizing the stock market. If you look at the fact that 
you know, people can still deduct margin interest. Uh, if you look at the fact that if people are investing, uh, uh, investing for lengths of time that are considered longer term capital gains, they're actually paying less taxes than they would as a corporation that's creating jobs and doing things in the real economy. So we've been subsidizing market bubbles. And as a result, I think that's helped to drive a lot of these, these buybacks that companies looked at the numbers and they said, it makes more sense for us economically because of these, you know, essentially federal subsidies to buy back the shares rather than uh, keeping reserves, rather than capital investment, rather than increase, increasing wages. And of course, interest rates being so low is part of the reason why companies haven't wanted to keep money in cash earning interest. So there's, there's a whole big systemic method. Are you there? Yes. Are you there? Uh, I lost you for a second. Yeah, I, I heard everything except maybe the last two or three words. Um, I think it, the words about something, it's, it's, it's a whole big mess there. <laughs> right. So, I mean, at the same time, on the other end of this whole uh, kind of stock market support program, if you want to think of it that way, is the fact that the, um, uh, most of the mergers that were proposed in some cases, large, large scale mergers were uh, almost always, almost always approved in the last uh, one or two or three decades. I mean, if you only look at the banking industry, if you looked at the number of banks, what, 30 years ago, you, ha you probably had uh, nationwide 20 or 30 mid-sized banks and perhaps three or four uh, East Coast or West Coast money center banks. And now you have, after a series of mergers over the years, uh, just mainly these uh, four or five giants and a, a number of small, uh, less, less present, less impactful regionals. And this has happened in, in, a, in a number of industries. I mean, when people compare the U.S. stock market to the European stock markets, uh, of course, the, Euro the U.S. stock market has been much better, or I should say much, uh, has risen a lot more than the European markets in the, since the financial crisis. Uh, that's due to many things. One is the factor that we like to mention the most often, which is that America is more innovative. But that's not the only factor. The other factor that people don't speak about, well, one is, as you mentioned, are the share buybacks. But another uh, also important factor is the fact that we've had many more mergers here. And so the fact that there is uh, more consolidation, it means more profitability for these companies. Although interesting, you bring up mergers and acquisitions. Uh, a lot of the research shows that uh, a much larger number of mergers and acquisitions than you might think uh, disappoint, to put it politely, that in many cases they actually destroy value rather than creating value. And it's fascinating to see what's happened with banks because supposedly after 2008, 2009, uh, regulators wanted to reduce this quote-unquote too big to fail problem and what do we get even bigger you know even 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 more bigger to right. too big, even yeah, more whatever too bigger happened to, fail. That I, to that idea of breaking up the whatever happened to if you're what was it if you're too big to fail you're too big yeah something like that, that. was that was yeah maybe i'm uh, botching it but something to the effect that they should not remain at the size that they were following the financial crisis. Uh, when I look in your book, I see you had uh, different stages of dealing with a gray rhino. And so maybe I missed one or two in, in that case, please uh, bear with me. But you mentioned denial, muddling, diagnosing, panic, action. So are we in panic now or where are we presently in your opinion? Well, what's interesting is it's, it's very different for different people and for different countries. And a lot of the work I'm doing right now is looking at why different countries, different people, different organizations respond differently. 
um, you're, you've certainly got some people who were who are very much in the uh, in the diagnosing and testing phase. You know, what can we do to develop a vaccine faster? What are the relative benefits of the Korean approach versus the U.S. approach? Um, not enough people are uh, are in the panic mode, frankly, and and panic is is really a double-edged sword. Uh, it's the time when people are most likely to do something, uh, but they're also most likely to do the wrong thing. Um, so, really, what you want to do is is get out of denial as quickly as you can. Um, you know, the muddling stage is when you accept that there's a problem, but you're coming up with 47 reasons why you can't do something about it. You you want to get out of that as fast as you can. Go into diagnosing instead of here's the 47 reasons why I can't do something to fix this problem. Flip that to who, who needs to do what? How do I get them to do what? How do I get the resources? What's the game plan to make this happen? Once you've got that plan, ideally you've got it pulled together before the panic stage so that you can shove it in people's faces so that they, they have a way to make the right decisions. Uh, one of the biggest examples is, is huge tax cuts during during boom times, stimulus during boom times, um, when belt tightening would be making more sense, and then people start austerity uh, as you're sliding into uh, into a recession, and that of course makes the recession worse. So a lot of our policy behaviors are making the highs higher and the lows lower, which is great for people who are trading volatility, uh, but not so great for everyone else, for businesses that are looking at long-term planning. Um, and action, you generally find uh, some, um, some early adopters. You find a few people, these sort of mavericks, who start acting before other people. And the question is, how do you, how do you find those people? Uh, how do you amplify what they're doing? How do you bring more people along to the action part of the curve? Uh, and then how do you track it? You know, how effective are the steps that you're taking? Do you need to tweak them a bit? Do you need to try other strategies that are more effective? Uh, and of course, not everybody gets to the action stage. You've seen you know, companies go bankrupt because they never got there. They got trampled. Um, but the, 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 the framework is actually very useful for looking at where different, frame holder, uh, different stakeholders are in the in the process of responding to the risk at hand and once you understand where they are you can come up with strategies that are appropriate to each stage to get them to move to uh to a, a more proactive and more helpful place uh, i think really the, the the next stage in risk management that we're going to see is more focus on behaviors and actions after the last financial crisis, you see this huge boom in, uh, in risk management solutions to help you track all of the different risks to assign probabilities, which are just probabilities. And, you know, people sometimes put too much faith in a number that, that may have been derived from, you know, pulled straight out of the air. Um, but there's, there's not enough, there hasn't been enough attention to you know, what are the organizational structures? What are the decision-making structures? How do you set up your board? Uh, how do you set up your C-suite so that the people making decisions have the right inputs? How do you get the warnings from the frontline workers who in most cases can tell you every single thing wrong with the company? How do you get that up to the top? How do you get policymakers to, uh, to look in, at, at a longer-term framework and, and how do citizens hold them accountable? I think we're going to see a lot more attention to that. I've seen so much outrage at, you know, why is it taking weeks and weeks and months and months to respond to this when other countries got their act together? You know, people have been complaining about buybacks for a long time, and people are very angry that those same companies now want a, a federal handout. So uh, it, it really requires... A, a shift in attitude from letting policymakers off the hook by saying, oh, that was a black swan, nobody could have seen it coming, and instead saying, hey, did, what's the gray rhino? What are they doing to deal with it? And if they're not, let's bring in somebody who can. Right. 
So going back to what you mentioned earlier, uh, I mean, you did say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get past this, this coronavirus, but um, we don't know how long it's going to take. You mentioned the possibility of a second wave. Um, any other gray rhinos that maybe not directly related to this that you worry about? Looking, well, looking. I mean, other than climate change, which everyone is aware of, although not everyone's buying into. But uh, or maybe you do want to talk about climate change. Well, that's fine. I don't want to. Well, I can talk br briefly. Um, but you know, for quite a while, it's been a sort of triad of gray rhinos that have worried me. Um, one, climate change, uh, which last year we saw a lot of central banks warn could be the catalyst for a financial crisis. Uh, a lot of insurance companies are undercapitalized. Uh, compared to the predictions that we're getting for more extreme weather, national natural disasters, damage, and supply chain shocks, and things like that. Uh, inequality. Uh, that is a huge drag on the economy. As we talked about before, if, if, you're, uh, if you're doing stimulus and it's just going into uh, people's broker accounts and not into buying products and hiring people and keeping the economy humming, that house of cards is going to fall in on itself and it's going to combine with even more political and social instability than we've had uh, so far. And then the third leg really is the, um, the short-sighted monetary policies, the financial fragilities, the, the unwillingness to look at asset bubbles. Well, you know, one of them just deflated entirely, uh, maybe not entirely, but a significant part of it. Um, so it's really how these three things interact with each other, you know, climate change, inequality, and financial fragilities. For the past five years, though, I've been doing an annual meta-analysis uh, where I look at, um, I think it was at least 50, 50 lists this year, but top risks, predictions, outlooks, forecasts, uh, sometimes they're ranked, sometimes they're not. Some of them come from political risk people, some from economic risk people, some are global, some are not. But I basically look at a, a whole compendium of lists, what keeps people up at night for the coming year, and, uh, and pull together uh, a uh, really a compilation of those. And it's partly so that in the future, we don't go back and say, oh, hey, nobody saw this coming. And I can say, well, hey, here are all of these big, um, these big firms, these respected analysts who are saying, yes, 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 these things are, are coming. Um, so those, uh, this year, I actually just did five. Um, economic financial fragilities is at the very top of the list. Um, number two is political uncertainty, uh, both within countries and on the geopolitical level. So I think you get weakness and you get chest thumping and warmongering. Climate change is the third one. Uh, the fourth one is cyber and digital risk. And the last one is supply chain risks. Uh, so those change from year to year. And it's very, very interesting to see that there's some, some countries that pay much more attention to some and uh, others not so much. The World Economic Forum does a great global risks list every year. And uh, pandemics was actually uh, in the in the top ten. Uh, Interesting. So Although something like the virus, you can't um, because you know you have no idea which year it's going to hit. My guess is it wouldn't make anyone's number one or number two on any list. I mean, unless they already saw uh, the beginnings of it, let's say in in November or something like that. Uh, and yet, you know, for a year like this year, it's the most impactful. So it's, mm -hmm. it's something that's predictable, perhaps on a five, 10 year basis as a very, very real threat, but maybe not something that, you know, unless you see signs of it, that you would put in the top three of your worries in any given year. Absolutely. And, and that's why it's so important to be more proactive about the things that we definitely do see coming, because it makes us that much more vulnerable and fragile if something whose timing we can't predict or even something that, that really nobody could have seen, uh, although there are you know, fewer and fewer of those, uh, you know, if, if one of those surprises happens, you want all the things that you had control of to be taken care of as best you can 
so that you don't get this un intersection of problems. I was just reading this morning about what if an earthquake happens in the middle of this? What if there's a tsunami? What if there's some other exogenous shock? We're, you're talking we're more really, of a, almost like a perfect storm situation, yeah. Exactly, and we're already in a perfect storm. Um, so those, those things are, are very worrisome because particularly in the West, I, you know, I actually find that, that in Asia, people do tend to be more proactive, more worried about these things and have more confidence and expectations that their government is going to do something about it, even though it, it you know, might not be perfect, even though it, it might be too late. But there's, uh, there's a lot more awareness of this. And I think that's why the gray rhino really caught on in a big way in Asia first. Right. I mean, you know, this country, as you know, runs in large part on optimism. Things have worked out, not, not for everyone, but for a large majority or maybe not a large majority, a majority of people for a long time. It worked out beautifully for a majority of people. Uh, so there is kind of a reflex to dismiss people who are alarmists. Uh, and that's something we see with climate change, with a lot of other things. Um, so, you know, I mean, there are two ways of looking at it. You can say, and also you have, you know, the, the, the experience of uh, previous prophets of doom. Maybe that's a strong word, but previous uh, people who were ringing alarm bells, for example, about the population boom, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Paul mm -hmm. Ehrlich. And uh, things worked out fine, but then you could take the position of saying that the reason they worked out fine is because you had people like Paul Ehrlich ring the alarm bells and people adjusted their, their lives and maybe had fewer children, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, I bring this up because um, I recall very specifically the Y2K experience, which I'm sure you, you remember well, where every, you know, not everyone, well, everyone was kind of worried about it, but some people were very much alarmed that something really bad was about to happen as soon as the calendar uh, flipped on the new year and uh, very little happened you know it was kind of a non-event so you could take one of two positions you could say well all these people who were sounding the alarm were wrong because they overplayed it or you could say the reason nothing really bad happened is because they sounded the alarm and people were proactive to address the issue before the turn of the calendar and um what do you think of that? I think I would probably fall in the second camp. What, 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 how, how do you think about it? Absolutely. Well, it goes back to the, to the counterfactuals I was talking about before with Argentina. You know, they didn't want to lose 30% and they ended up losing 70%. Um, we're not good at counterfactuals. And I would love to see us do a better job of recognizing people who made hard decisions and who stood up and prevented problems. I mean, the, the RFK Center has its, uh, its Profiles and Courage Awards. They, they talked about the, the first George Bush presidency where he said, all right, we're going to have to raise taxes to, the, to, to balance the budget. And uh, it, was, it was unpopular. The economy didn't, uh, didn't bounce back as fast as he'd hoped and so lost the election. The people who just want low taxes Claim, you know, claim it was just the, because of his tax decision. Um, others say it's more complicated than that. Um, but we really need to, to recognize decisions like that. And, uh, and we're, not, we're not good at it. You look at, at Joan of Arc, one of my favorite examples, you know, she saved her country and as thanks, she got burned at the stake. Uh, so it's, it's hard, but I, I've seen a couple of people saying, you know, the best possible outcome is that, we could spend a few weeks staying at home watching Netflix and comes out and it turns out not to have been as bad as people predicted. Right. And that's, that's the ideal outcome. And right. if, if that does happen, we need to be out in the streets, you know, banging pans and celebrating everyone who contributed to keeping us out of more trouble. Right. All right, Michelle, we're coming up to an hour here. You've been very generous with your time. 
Well, you've uh, had great questions. I've really enjoyed talking thank with you. you. It's, you're very kind. Uh, there's one quote uh, in your book or one sentence in your book that caught my attention that I thought was a good, uh, in my view at least, uh, a good summation of this entire idea. And, and you wrote, the emergency room is the most expensive way of getting medical care, which uh, you didn't mean when you wrote it uh, specifically about healthcare, you, you were using that as a metaphor, but is kind of uh, hits home even more accurately today. Yeah, goes into, you know, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, stitch in time saves nine. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the paradox about gray rhinos is the further they are down the road, the less likely you are to do something about them. But that's the time when it's going to cost the least and you're most likely to be successful. And people right. need to pay more attention to that. Very good. Michelle Wooker, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And I'm going to stop recording, but if you can stay on the line one second uh, so that you and I can wrap up. Thank you, Michelle Wooker.